Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night. It's just gone past quarter to eight. It's May the 1st, 1980, and your host, Al Needham, that's me, is hunched over the portable telly in his bedroom with a copy of the brand new Smashes by his side, deciding which skinny tie to wear at the youth club later on. But most of all, cramming every second of this episode at top of the pops into his gaping maw. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the final part of Chart Music 68, as we rejoin the episode in progress. Skinheads are magic! Well, you heard of the Great Wall of China, that's the Great Wall of Noise. That was Motorhead and leaving here. Hi, girls! Hi, Great singers, but not as good as the Nolans, who don't make any way... Vance, surrounded by even more appallingly bouffanted young ladies, tells us that we've had the Great Wall of China, but now we've witnessed the Great Wall of Noise. He then sings, Hi girls, and they respond with, Hi Tom, so that Vance can coat them down when he tells them they're nowhere near as good as the next act, the Nolans with Don't Make Waves. Jimi Hendrix. Public Enemy, U2, Joy Division, Marvin Gaye, Elvis Presley, Public Image Limited, Bruce Springsteen, Sly and the Family Stone, Bob Dylan, Led Zeppelin, James Brown. None of those have ever been covered on chart music, but we're about to talk about the fucking Nolans for the fifth time. This is the follow-up to I'm in the Mood for Dancing, which got to number three for two weeks in February of this year. It came out a month ago and entered the charts at number 58, and when it soared 24 places to number 38 the following week, they were ushered into the Top of the Pop studio, which gave it a nine-place leg up to number 25. This week, it stayed at number 25, but no matter, it's the fucking Nolans, they're back. 
Oh, at last yes <laughs> at last we've done the nolans as you say so many fucking times mm. and it's almost become a running joke when i'm on the show yes. that it's a shame it's not don't make waves well yeah at fucking last it is don't make waves yeah you better like it simon yeah no it's shit um yeah um <laughs> i, I want to talk about it in terms of disco evolution okay because this subclade begins with a common ancestor of rock the boat by hughes corporation Mm. right uh produced by john flores um who was um obviously of hispanic descent but from los angeles but then rocky baby by george mccray produced by Mm. casey and the sunshine band miami so um it's got that kind of latino feel that both those records have so yeah so you've got that as as the ancestors then most importantly, I think in this case, Dancing Queen by ABBA, because mm. that was ABBA's attempt to make their own Rocky Baby and to take that kind of Latin syncopation. And Don't Make Waves is post-ABBA. Not that I'm by any means placing Don't Make Waves on the same um, level as as Rocky Baby or, or Dancing Queen, mm. but it's got the DNA of that Latin disco sound filtered through Northern European mum-pop sensibilities. Yeah. Um, what I love about the structure of this song is that the intro, vocally, kicks in halfway through the, the chorus. That bit that goes, So let our hearts roam free If mm. you wanna love me. You know, it's like halfway through, and that's a really clever little songwriting trick because it's, yeah. it's the most exciting bit of the song, and it's a really mm. clever way to get you hooked in to do like half of the chorus before you actually do the song. Yeah. It's produced by Ben Finden and co-written by Finden with Robert Pusey and Mike Myers, uh, not the Austin Powers one. Probably not the baddie from Halloween. You never know. <laughs> um, they were all established journeymen and hacks mm. of middle of the road mm. pop, mm. right? Um, their fingerprints are all over the Dooleys, for example, yeah. who are very much the John the Baptist to the Nolan's Jesus. Um, <laughs> Finden did loads of Schlager and Europop prior to this, which you can kind right. of tell. But but um, he did also produce and co-write Love Really Hurts Without You for Billy Ocean. And Ooh. even better than that, Red Light Spells Danger. Oh, wow. Which is literally one of the greatest records ever made. So this guy, he's a hack who knew what he was doing Mm. and capable of flashes of genius. Mm. For me, this song is a tiny flash of genius and by far um, the best thing the Nolans ever did. Right. The performance here is is bog standard Nolans doing their symmetrical sororal choreography in silver jackets and salmon Mm. tops and black slacks and bright pink belts with I thought a slightly phallic dangle on the end of each Ah funky belt. That's it, is it? That's the belt you're talking about. Yeah, Ah. yeah, they're wearing funky belts. I mean they look as if all the women in Greece were outfitted by the K's (laughs) catalogue. You know what I mean? I'm so glad what we cleared it up in in the same episode we cleared up what a funky belt was this is really mm. good um but yeah the whole thing it's total cruise ship there's no sex no sleaze mm. just wholesome entertainment um although looks can be deceptive which maybe we'll talk about in a minute mm. i'll hand over yeah. to neil now well i mean it's interesting you say this is like one of that that probably your favorite nolan i mean i i kind of wish this was any of the other singles off the making waves album because right. because sexy music, um, I th- I'm fairly sure that might have formed the melodic inspiration behind my sister's game of disco lights. By the way, um, um, might have been made for a better performance. Or the mighty, you know, who's going to rock you? Mm. Um, co-written by Billy Ocean, 
funnily enough. Ah, uh, so there's that yes. the ocean connection there. But I would love to, who's going to rock you to be on this episode because they might have played the video, which starts with one of the greatest sight sound gags ever. Um, right. Linda Nolan starts the song um, on the recorded version with a kind of disco yowl. And in the video, to, to make that believable, she's running a bath about to hit the town. And then she puts her foot in this hot bath. <laughs> <laughs> and she does this loud, yeah, Yuru, which is worthy, you know, it's like Babyface Finlayson or something. <laughs> oh my God. That's like, there was this tradition in the local cinema in Barry. Mm. I don't know if I've talked about this before. No. But, you know, um, cinemas in those days, probably not so much anymore, would have local adverts yeah, yeah. in the trailers yeah, yeah. as well as sort of national ones. And there was one in Barry for a local kind of um, carpets and flooring um, uh, retailer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, what it was, there was um, a woman getting up in the morning in her dressing gown and she's walking down um, lovely, thick, plush carpeted stairs right, right. Um, until she gets to the bottom and it's cold tiles. And when she puts <laughs> her bare foot on the cold tiles, everybody in the cinema would scream, like, ah! <laughs> and it's just this thing that became a local tradition and I, I I fucking loved it I wonder if there's anything else out there like that just these like weird little local things that grow up but in response to that advert the woman in the advert doesn't scream she just sort of flinches a bit mm, mm. but people would scream and yeah yeah you, you just reminded me of that it's a nice memory to have the thing is, oh. with, uh, thing is with this song it sounds like it was written at a much slower pace and has been kind of a little bit artificially discoed up I think that doesn't really yes. suit the kind of like, rather dreary anthemic Melody. Mm, I don't think yeah. they benefit from what they're wearing. No. As has been mentioned. I, I, I know they couldn't wear the same thing as they did on the Lena Zavaroni show, but when they do this on the Lena Zavaroni show, they wear these sort of purple pantsuits that are way more flattering. <clears throat> what this really made me think about there, I was reading a thing with a video director, an interview with a video director from the early 80s, and he was talking in general about when he's got in trouble with his videos, and he said that. In one of the Nolan's videos he does, Maureen Nolan looks tearfully at a picture of her old boyfriend and then throws it in a river. And th- this video is banned in case it made people throw litter. So, <laughs> oh, <for fuck's> sake. <laughs> so there you go nolan's kicking uh, out the jams but um mm, yeah bit of a low spot for me in this show yeah uh, i mean like books fizz in a few years time the nolans are trapped in that limbo between actual pop stardom and the cabaret circuit as reviewing the stage a few months hence bears out Right. The image of the Nolans has been given a glossy veneer of late, a fact that was reflected throughout their recent show at Wembley. Surely not the stadium. <laughs> no. There were the smooth and sexy costumes, provocative and exhausting dance routines, a material that will go down a treat on the disco floor. These contrast somewhat disconcertingly with the clean-cut, girl-next-door giggles, but no matter. By the enthusiasm shown at this concert, there is a place in the hearts of many middle-aged, middle-class mums and dads for this kind of entertainment. Like the Osmonds, they are family life on parade. Middle-of-the-road classics, ancient and modern, abounded, with the newest and youngest of the group, Colleen, leading the way with Touch Me in the Morning. She's 15, everyone. A medley of songs from the last few decades provided a range of styles from a neat Charleston number to rock around the clock and, much to the astonishment of the audience, a quick blast of punk. What? What? (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I'd, and I'd love to know what oh my punk. God. Well, the thing is, in terms of their sort of um, family-friendly, wholesome image, obviously that that was deceptive. I think we we have to talk about what happened backstage at this very episode of Top of the Pops. Yes, Motorhead and the Nolans did meet up. And uh, there was an attempt by Lemmy to cop off with one of them. Um, and uh, I found right. interview quotes from both sides to confirm this happened. Ooh, right. Right. So here is from Lemmy's side, right? He says, no, there was no fling, but it wasn't for the want of trying. They are awesome chicks. People forget those girls mm. were on stage with Frank Sinatra at the age of 12. They've seen most things twice. Mm. We were on top of the pops at the same time as them. And our manager was trying to chat up Linda, the one with the bouffant hair and the nice mm. boobs. He dropped his lighter and bent down to pick it up. Linda said to him, while you're down there, why don't you give me a dot, dot, dot? Oh, it blew him away. We didn't expect that from a Nolan sister. None of us did. Uh. We were supposed to be the smelliest, loudest motherfuckers in the building, but we more than met our match. We were in awe. Wow. You couldn't mess with the Nolan sisters. That's from uh, Lemmy's point of view. <laughs> um, in Colleen's version, it was right. Lemmy himself, not the manager, who dropped something on the floor and bent down to pick it up, only to be given the while you're down there love treatment from Linda. Mm. And uh, Colleen says the look of shock on his face was priceless. He thought he'd have to watch his behaviour in front of the Von Trapps. Yes. And there was Maria Von Trapp being so crude. From that point on, he realised we were ordinary people and we got along great. Colleen also says... Lemmy was the nicest, most intelligent, philosophical person you could ever meet. He'll probably be turning uh. in his grave now I've said that. Though I was terrified when I met him for the first time uh, in 1981. She's got the year wrong there. Uh, I was a yeah. Nolan sister and he was this scary looking heavy metal guitarist. Colleen continues, uh, but he found out that the Nolans weren't that innocent either. Uh, when we did Top of the Pops, he bent over to pick something up in front of us and Linda said while you're down there. So there we go. It's confirmed by uh, by both sides. Wow. So the following week, Don't Make Waves soared 10 places to number 15, and two weeks later it got to number 12, its highest position. The follow-up, Gotta Pull Myself Together, got to number 9 for two weeks in October and November of this year, by which time Linda and new member Colleen Nolan teamed up with Mickey Moody of Whitesnake, Bob Young, a songwriter for Status Quo, Cozy Powell and Lemme in the Young and Moody band for the single Don't Do That. Well, which is one of the great incongruous hookups in pop history, along with Shawadi Wadi supporting Einstein's End and Neubauten. Mm. But yeah, it's just a sort of um, standard kind of blues rock knees up, very much in the same vein as, uh, uh, who was it who did... Uh, Hold me is Maggie Bell and B. A. Robertson. Is that yes. kind of, yeah, that kind of feel to it. That's that's what it's like. Yeah. yeah, and not the only collaboration between the Nolans and Motorhead, as we'll discover later. After telling us how international the Nolans are, Tommy 
on his own this time, invites us into the bathroom and guides us towards the mirror and introduces the next band, The Beat, with Mirror in the Bathroom. We've wanged on about how fucking skilled The Beat are many a time and off on chart music and this, their third single, which was written before they'd even got a deal with Two-Tone or anyone else, is the follow-up to Hands Off She's Mine, which got to number nine in March of this year. It's also the third cut from her forthcoming debut LP, I Just Can't Stop It, which comes out at the end of the month. It's automatically entered the chart this week at number 58, but that is not going to deter Top of the Pops from ushering them into the studio. Two words, boys. Fucking yes! (laughs) This is amazing. Yes. And, And it's another moment in the show where I feel like pulling some of the audience up by their lapels and just snarling at oh, them. What yes. the fuck are you doing? How are you staying still? This is fucking astonishing. Yeah. You know, the beat, whenever they're on top of the pops, they're always dazzling because they're just a band that have so much. They've got two absolute stone cold heartthrobs in Dave and mm. Roger. You've mm. got a sax of just being the coolest motherfucker on earth. Oh, yes. I mean, this song had particular resonance in my household at the time because it put my sister, Mira through that thing that no kid wants having their name mentioned in a popular song oh, you know having it sung at her a lot mirror in the bathroom oh, no, yeah no. and and i mean i got the i got the same a year or so later when dollars little known b-side neil kulkani is a wanker got some radio play but for, a while, <laughs> for a while this song massively wound my sister up and as her little brother i felt that residual resentment too but my god what a record and mm. and i mean as you say i, I mean uh, I mean, what's a year for albums and singles 1980 is? Susie Banshee's coming out with Kaleidoscope, Diana Ross, Diana, the Linton Crazy Johnson album we mentioned, Warm Leatherette, Remaining Light, more specials. It's just an amazing year for albums. You've got to put I Just Can't Stop It in that company. Um, And in the NME 50 tracks of the year for 1980, the beat have three singles in the top 30, which no other band does. Yeah, two top 10 singles already this year. It's only May the 1st. and, And this has the words nailed on hit written all over it. Oh, without a doubt. And they've been sitting on it as well. That's really crucial. Yes. It reminds me of a quote from not Dave Wakely and the other Dave, where in an interview that year, he says, I think there are three things you should have in a band. You should be sort of poppy, weird, and you should be able to dance to it. And that is this record to a T. It's such mm. a weird little record. In today's issue of Smash Hits, which I would have had close to me while watching this, the singles page absolutely frothed at the gash over this song. Mm. In short, their best yet, wrote a small creature in shorts. Pumping rhythm, clip guitar, a song that is a very model of simple insistence, and the whole thing is topped off with some marvellous sax playing that weaves in and out of the structure. Hear it twice and you feel like you've known it for years, and fucking hell, that small creature mm. in shorts was not lying. Oh, too right. I don't think this was the first time I heard the song. I think I heard it on the radio a few times. Mm. But yeah, the minute you hear it, it's like, fuck oh, me, God, it's in point there. me in the direction of the record shop now. Which is mental for a record with, with I mean, really really no chorus bar a repeat of the title but eventually the lack mm. of a chorus becomes its own chorus this incessant repetition yes and this hovering around mm. this very sort of downward minor key pattern but it's massively danceable rhythmically there's these long lines of lyrics where the lines grow into these sinister insistences on you know watching yourself whilst you're eating and stuff it chilled me as a child it still chills mm. me now mm. and watching this performance you get the sense with the way that the beat put this across 
just how much they've waited for this moment. Not only is this song an old song that's more reflective of them as personalities than perhaps the covers mm. were, but it's it, you know it feels like the first moment where this band are able to exert some autonomy over what they put out, and it's a really important statement. They're, they're brilliantly yeah. served as well, I have to say, by the antics of the backroom boys at Top of the Pops with yes. some excellent mirrored split-screen action and stuff. Yes. Appallingly served by the audience, but fuck me, what a moment in the episode this is. Yeah, um, it's not just the um, sort of computery stuff they do with uh, the split-screen horizontal and, you know, Dave Wakeling yes. being mirrored. It's literally the yes. handheld looking glass that the Roger has, isn't it? And he does that thing where he angles the looking glass just perfectly mm. so he can stare into it and see down the camera. That's a lovely little touch, isn't it? Mm. This song, as you say, was always in their locker. They had it at their sleeve. Um, I, I interviewed Dave Wakelin um, a couple of years ago now, and he was telling me about this, that, well, basically it all began in the summer of 78 when uh, he and Andy Cox went down to the Isle of Wight to earn a bit of money fitting solar panels to houses. And they were staying in a house uh, in Black Gang, Chine, which has since fallen into the sea. And uh, while they were there, they just started playing in local bands for something to do. But they decided they wanted to start up their own thing, and they advertised locally for a bassist. (gasps) That's how they found David Steele. Could have had Mark King. Mark King could have been in the beat fucking hell. (laughs) Parallel universe, yeah, geez. But yeah, David Steele, the man that Wakeling describes as the Mozart of the band, Mm. he's the one on this performance and pretty much every performance who does that mad ankle tangling dance which saxa called the shuffle Mm. and dave said that they all tried to copy it but none of them could do it it's only can do it Um, a lot of the songs on that first album i just can't stop it were written down in the isle of Wight while they were fitting these solar panels including mirror in the bathroom david Steele was training as a mental health nurse yes uh, but he decided to move to birmingham with the the other two when they went back and carry it on to to give the beat a chance and songs Mm. like this are all about his bass lines, really. Yeah. And and it was, yeah, it was always up their sleeve. As they started playing live and their reputation grew, there was a, a sort of watershed moment where they played John Peel's Roadshow at Aston University, mm. which is their first gig with proper PA and lights. John Peel went fucking apeshit for them. Right. He introduced them as the best band in the universe after the undertones. Right. So the reputation was spreading and Jerry Dammers... Um, came along to check them out because he'd heard rumours about them and mm. saw them as kind of competition, I suppose. Mm. Obviously, he was blown away and he, he offered them a record deal with Tuto. And he said to them, I mean, he already had in mind, he said, that mirror in the bathroom for the first single, mm. right? Ooh. And they said to him, yeah, yeah, that's probably the one. But then when Dammers showed them the paperwork, the, the contract with, with Two-Tone and Chrysalis, and it said that Chrysalis would keep the song for five years and they couldn't have it on their album. Right. So they said no. And the way they got around it quite diplomatically was they said, all right, you can have tears of a clown and you can argue with Smokey Robinson about whose song it is. And also um, tears of a clown or, you know, the first beat single, whatever it may have been was coming out at Christmas. So they said, just watch, it'll do better if we hold on to this one. Mm. You don't want a song about one of Dave's nervous breakdowns. Save that for the new year when everyone's thinking about killing themselves in February. (laughs) Which is really smart because, you know, they're sort of leading two-tone along, sort of implying that, yeah, you know, we'll we'll stick with you and we'll we'll put that single out. But of course, what they had up their sleeve was they're going to quit. So 
they they do Tears of a Clown slash Rankin full stop on two tone and then they leave and in a way surprising but also very canny that this isn't even the first single on their own label as you say hands off she's mine mm. comes first which is a brilliant song yes, but it's it a bit more lightweight and a bit yeah. sort of yeah. less substantial than Mary in the Bathroom so they were just sort of finding their feet and building their audience uh, and it was it was a superb move to set up their own label Gofi mm. rather than just signing directly to Arista because in a way it became their mirror if you'll pardon the pun of two tone yeah. Uh, they had their own identity that the parent label, the big, you know, in two times case, it was Chrysalis. The big bad label is hiding behind this kind of independent looking front. And it's really important as well that the Beat had a girl as their logo, the Beat Girl. Yes. Dave Wakelin's talked about this as well, about uh, they they wanted to provide a counterpoint to the kind of blokey thing of Two-Tone yeah. having Walt Jabsco. Mm. It's in the hope that girls would feel more welcome coming to their gigs. And, yeah. you know, apparently that, that did work. That's my next tattoo, by the way. Uh, the other thing about this, already it's not Scar. Because... Yeah. Um, Tears of a Clown, ranking full stop, very, very high octane, sped up scar. Even Hands Off, She's Mine, although that's almost got a kind of Afrobeat uh, element to it. It's got an African thing going on. But by this point, I don't know what it is. I guess it's funk. Um, it's paranoid funk. It's funk having a nervous breakdown, as uh, Dave puts it. Mm. It's a dance record about mental illness, for fuck's sake. Mm. You know, which shouldn't work. But it's it's about agitation and paranoia. And it sounds agitated and paranoid. So in that sense, it is musical onomatopoeia. Even the thing about having a a glass table where you can watch yourself while you're eating. Mm. As as an adult, you you, you think of reflective surfaces and you think of cocaine, you know. Mm. So there, there is that kind of... Cocaine paranoia. Or Keith Joseph. <laughs> it is funk, but I think sax is up there ante a little bit um, in, in mm. terms of the way... I mean, what Dave's playing on the guitar, it's almost jazz. He's playing some really quite weird shit on his guitar. So, yeah, it doesn't neatly fit into any pigeonhole you'd care to shove it into. It's just this unique mm. little thing. And I keep saying little yeah. thing. It's a fucking massive thing. Yeah, Sax is very much the Joey the Lips, isn't he, of the beat? I love him because whenever he's interviewed at the time... People want to know, you know, what have you learned from this? And he just keeps saying, nothing. I'm not learning anything from these guys. But he loves them. I love how Dave Wakeling and Rankin Roger do uh, reflect the subculture that they are part of by wearing Harringtons. Yes. And they, they just really look the part. Yes. But Saxa has Saxons. Yes. Um, yes. But, you know, he, he's, he's old. Yeah, but he's he's old. He's like, he can wear what the fuck he wants. He's well, old, right. you know. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. You don't want him in a bomber jacket like Tommy Vance, do you? <laughs> As with the specials and madness, and with a band that we're going to see later on, there was endless playground debate amongst the fourth and fifth year contingent over if you could be a mod and like this sort of thing. But for for a newly minted twelve year old like me and my peers, there's no qualms whatsoever. This is fucking me. Yeah. Well, it is a little bit more mod than a lot of the Scar bands. There was a bit of argument in the music press over whether the beat were mod or not. Well, it's because it's so sharp, what they're doing. You know? Yes. It's got that kind of nervous energy that uh, a lot of the best stuff by The Jam also had. Mm. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's too much of a leap for 
jam fans to be beat fans and beat fans to be jam fans, put it yeah. that way. We're having a go at Saxon for wearing band T-shirts. Um, Dave Wakelin's got not one but two beat badges <laughs> yes, yes. on his Arrington, yeah. <laughs> and of course, talking about the beat girl, there will be the second most plastic mod badge ever after Madness Modness. No, probably the third, because there was the other one, wasn't there? There was the Secret Affair badge with a nutty boy looking through a keel. Well fucking plastic, mate. <laughs> yeah. Plastic cut-out badge of Walt Jabsko and the beat girl on a scooter. Oh, I've got it. I've got that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had an even more shonky beat badge than any of those, Ooh. which was, it was just a, a round button badge. But you know, the logo was um, the letters all kind of wonky next to each other. Yes. But the B was like a, a like, like, like the flat symbol for music from, mm. from Staves, you know. Uh, um, but on this one, they just put a normal capital B. For fuck's sake. But I still wore it. Of course you did. Because I'd spent 25p on it. Pathetic. It's a very mod lyric in any case with its apparent nods at narcissism. Mm. Obviously, it's a bit deeper than that. But but yeah, I would be watching this and absolutely champing at the bit for my Saturday afternoon excursion into town. And it goes without saying that whenever this hit the decks at the community centre or the youth club, it would go the fuck off. Absolutely. I mean, we all do a bit of DJing, right? You Mm know? And um, I run my own club night spellbound 80s night and obviously mm. we play the beat when when i stick this on people absolutely lose their shit mm. it's yeah. just mm. such it's just you cannot fail with this track yeah yeah i mean no matter what you were into round our way practically everybody danced the same it, that rhythmic leg kicking dance yeah the only difference <laughs> was what you added to it so the punks would kick their legs but also windmill their arms around <laughs> the mods and the rude boys would kind of like pump their fists close to their chest Mm. and the skinheads would just try to kick the punks and the mods so (laughs) yeah just one dance but so many variations a council estate can can it's funny though the mod the mod confusion because i mean i I remember reading an interview dave waitland where he says that at the time they're playing gigs and literally the mod revival crowd would be in the audience like just shouting mod They'd shout mod until they heard some mod music. Um, and, and he'd say, you know, this was a big hit and, um, you know, uh, sort of back in the 60s. And the, the, the people would lose their shit. But, I mean, the thing is, this is closer to that mix of black musical obsession and artiness that is mod. Mm. Um, far more than the fucking Merton Parkers or something. Of course, yeah. No God, yeah. The whole album... Um, I just can't stop it. It's totally a dance record, mm. start to finish. Mm, yeah. It's just incredible. And I think um, the beat have kind of slipped through the cracks of history a little bit. And I think we've talked about this before when we've dealt with the beat. But in a similar way that, uh, you know, you've got your Blur versus Oasis, but the, really the best band out of that lot was Pulp. Mm. It was always, oh, who do you prefer, Specials or Madness? Well, actually, maybe the beat. You know, they they just don't seem to get a look mm. in in those conversations. And they yeah. really should. I suppose some of it is to do with the fact that they never fully got back together uh, that, that, well, there was there was one gig uh, they played at the Royal Festival Hall, but even then, Steele and Cox mm. were missing from that. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah, it's such a missed opportunity. But um, the sound of that album, it's 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 hard to tell whether one is just projecting this onto it because you you know the fact. But it was the first album that was produced digitally 
Bob Sargent. Yeah, right. Bob Sargent was, yeah, that, on, on that album. And it's very neat and clipped and sharp. And you think, is that because it's recorded digitally or is that just completely irrelevant? I don't know. Mm. But it's an interesting fact about it anyway. Yeah, but it, it is an album that does seem to be left out of conversations about what the best album of 1980 is, for instance. And it should mm. be in every conversation oh about yeah. that because yeah, it's, yeah. it's really up there. So the following week, Mirror in the Bathroom soared 41 places to number 17. And a week later began a two-week run at number four. And at the end of the month, I just can't stop it, smashed into the LP chart at number three. The follow-up, the double A-side best friend slash stand-down Margaret, only got to number 22 in September, but they righted the ship when Too Nice to Talk To got to number 7 for two weeks in January of 1981. What a banger that is as well. Fuck me. Here in the Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Okay, what's in a name, girls? Show them. And here's another name to conjure with. This is Kate Bush. Outside Gets inside Through her skin Bunts! Standing above three more Trisha Yates types in Black Arrington's tells us that there's some great British records about and that was one of them. He then instructs the girls to turn around to reveal that they have Kim, Linda and Sharon printed on their backs. This is supposed to be an acceptable way to introduce Breathing by Kate Bush. We last encountered Kate Bush on chart music number 58, and this, her sixth single, is the follow-up to the Kate Bush on Stage EP, which got to number 10 in October of 1979. It's going to be the first single taken from her next LP, Never Forever. It came out a fortnight ago and entered the charts last week at number 44. This week it's risen 15 places to number 29, which gives Top of the Pops the opportunity to whack a video on. But let's put Kate Bush to one side for a moment, chaps. Let's talk about Arrington's, eh? Because <laughs> 1980 was the year of wearing clothes with your name on. I mean, practically everyone 
everyone at our school who had an Arrington would do the following. You, you'd get your Arrington, almost certainly from the market, and then you'd take it to another bloke in the market who did printing, mm-hmm. and you'd get the name on the top rocker, get a T-shirt transfer of whatever you fancied underneath, and then you get a clanking in on the front left-hand side, and you, you're good to go. You're 1980 <laughs> compliant. Nobody did that in my town. No, you're joking. No. Oh, man, no. everyone did that in my town. Yeah. Maybe it's a Midlands thing, Al. Did they do the transfer as well, Neil? Well, yeah, These uh, what they did was they did. these iron-on kind of or so-on sort of letters in the back. I've said before, you know, there was a choice. I had specials or you could yes. have madness. But you didn't have your own name on it. The own name thing, that wasn't as common. In the heat of two-tone, it was kind of between specials and madness Yeah. Um, as to what you had on the back. But I mean, you know, I was, what, seven going on eight and I still had that. Mm. It was something that everyone felt part of around here anyway. It would be Walt Jabsco or a specials transfer or uh, the Madness M. That was pretty big. But you could have all sorts on it. I knew one lad who had Blonde on the back of his. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I've, of course, I've mentioned Gourmet Dorna who had OMD on the back of his Arrington uh, a year or so down the line. I feel like I haven't lived because I, I would totally have had the Madness M if I'd been able to, yeah, but yeah, I just don't think there was a shop in Cardiff that did that. So. Yeah. But what bothers me about these three girls is that um, their names are in different fonts. Yeah. Um, yes. Two of them have got like this sort of Wild West handbill kind of font. Yeah, it's very cowboy font, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And the other one's just got a sort of sans serif um, font. I don't know what it is, but it's like, come on, girls. Yeah, like, isn't it funny how there were different fonts for different different areas because around our way it was all cooper black you know the dad's army farm uh, it was cooper oh, right. black around our way as well yeah yeah, yeah. there you go midland style <laughs> but oh man once again the market sorting you out the decline of the market has resulted in the decline of pop culture i feel in this country yeah now it's all fucking street food and all that shit indeed use your markets people yeah or you'll lose them anyway big year for kate bush 1980 uh, she started off by regaining the best female singer title at the Daily Mirror Rock and Pop Awards in February. And uh, three weeks ago, Pamela Stevenson did her on Not the Nine O'Clock News. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. you buy my latest tits because you like my latest tits. She's just written a letter to Faith Brown thanking her for her impersonation of her. And, um, you know, w- would you like to meet up for a drink? There's an unauthorised biography that's coming out very soon, which claims that she's a mystical pothead dominated by appearance. And that poster of her with all the nippleage dominates <laughs> every record shop in the kingdom and is gawped at by yous like me when we think no one's looking. Mm. So, yeah, she's all over the shop in 1980. I can't believe that our generation ignored Kate Bush at the time. Yes. And it was only the Stranger Things generation who finally gave her any credit, glanced to camera. (laughs) (laughs) And here she is in a video presenting the disturbing tableau of, you know, what happens when you lose the end of the cling film. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it's an odd video, this. But I mean, you know, whenever Very Kate, Bush, so. uh, as I've said before, but yeah, I, I've done Kate Bush before on, on chart music and mentioning the terrifying wideness of her eyes, etc. I <laughs> yes. can't help but think of my missus whenever I hear Kate Bush. Not only because my missus kind of looked like her, but yeah. also because she was a huge Kate Bush fan, and these albums were a big part of our life together. And actually, my mm. wife, she was kind of emblematic, I think, of who Kate Bush fans were in this period that we're talking about here. Mm. She was 
was a bit too young to feel part of punk, my wife, but she'd grown up in households that were full of music, and, you know, her dad was a Cliff fan, and her stepdad was a kind of prog fan who had, like, Dark Side of the Moon and Genesis albums and all kinds of prog. Mm. So, ultimately, she was someone who responded to kind of a slight bit of originality, singularity, and this fully realised musical visions Mm. kate bush had that appeal to a definite set of people i'm not saying she had no fans in london but what i mean is she appealed to the suburban loner i think Mm. kids who feel a bit solitary kids whose folks had floyd and genesis albums kids who loved bowie kids for whom punk wasn't really gonna cut it and you know perhaps i mean notwithstanding the annoyed female heavy metal fans of the sounds letters page earlier (laughs) fans who weren't interested in the fantasies of metal but did want some lushness and musicality and fantasy to their pop music Mm -hmm. and for those kids especially girls to find a pop star who had this look to aim for but also that sense of building pop from their kind of bedroom imagination outwards. Yeah. That a literary imagination as well. A very readly imagination. Yes. I think this, this is really important. And, you know, we're looking at this video, my days, what an odd, weird thing to have on the nation's top pop show. Yes. This song that sings about chips of plutonium twinkling in every lung. Oof. Um, you yeah. know, it, Get it, down, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, everything else on this show, you can kind of connect to something else, but this only really connects to Kate Bush. And I think that's why it connected to these kind of suburban loners out there. Was your wife a misty reader by any chance, Neil? Uh, I suspect she <laughs> yeah. was, yes. Kate Bush is so misty, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, this single, um, partly inspired by side three of Pink Floyd's The Wall, but mainly inspired by a documentary about nuclear war that she watched earlier this year, which I'm pretty certain is If the Bomb Drops, uh, that right. episode of Panorama about the government's preparations for nuclear mm-hmm. war, i.e. the fucking isn't any. It was the first chance that British public got to see clips of the protect and survive public information films Mm. but it's best known for the interview with the market trader who was asked by jeremy paxman what he'd do if he heard the four minute warning and replied it's a waste of time in it going anywhere you've had it incha you've had it incha no messing about you've had it incha and yeah the song sung from the perspective of a fetus uh, rather in the manner of belly button window by Jimi hendrix yeah. <laughs> in a smash it's interview earlier this month she says it's about a baby still in the mother's womb at the time of a nuclear fallout but it's more of a spiritual being it has all its senses sight smell touch taste and hearing and it knows what is going on outside the mother's womb and yet it wants desperately to carry on living as we all do of course nuclear fallout is something we're all aware of and worried about happening in our lives and it's something we should all take time to think about we're all innocent none of us deserve to be blown up and this baby wants a wants a cigarette as well because it thinks about the nicotine it's a weird little song in it yeah, I, I didn't really pick up on the meaning of it at the time. I've got to be honest. No, um, you, mm. you just think, oh, song about breathing. That's fucking boring. Look, I'm doing it now. Yeah, I, I probably thought, well, it's Kate Bush doing a slow song. Mm. So it's basically another wow or the man with a child in his eyes. You know, yeah. I just, mm. I probably mm. bracketed it with those and didn't really listen very closely. But mm. when, when you sort of dig into it, um, she was kind of obsessed with obstetric matters, right down to, you know, her first album being called The Kick Inside. Mm. Yeah, but all that stuff about chips of plutonium twinkling in every lung fucking hell yeah and she was concerned with events in the middle east um 
according yeah. to an interview I found, presumably 1980, she's talking about the Russian invasion of Afghanistan yeah. and what might come from that. But the record company didn't get it either. They were apparently concerned that the in-out, in-out bit was pornographic. Oh, no. Yes, work orange. They, Yes, exactly. They thought it was pornographic. They thought it was shagging. But... The thing is, she's so confident at this point, Mm. not just as an artist, but in terms of how secure she is with the record label, that she's able to make this the lead single from the album. When, you know, the the more obviously commercial babushka was ready and waiting, and even Army Dreamers, I suppose. Of course, you know, later on, she'd go way out on a limb and make an album as experimental as The Dreaming, Mm. which didn't have any massive hits at all, even though Sat In Your Lap, which was a mental berserk record got to number 11 yeah and then later still she finds the kind of perfect balance of the populist and the avant-garde on the hounds of love Mm. but this single at this time is a bit of a flex yeah 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 she's showing a muscle saying you know i can do this so the video um only the second one we've seen so far isn't it it's uh yeah like neil's mentioned it's kate wrapped up in cling film inside a plastic bubble Basically, it looks like she's about to go Zorbin in a nudist colony. <laughs> yes, she's invented Zorbin. <laughs> All in soft focus so we don't see out. Mm. So sorry about that, Dad. Yeah, she's attached to that plastic um, umbilical cord with the amniotic fluid represented yeah. by polythene. It's very cheap, isn't it? Like, to, to modernise, it looks very cheap. If someone like Billie Eilish did a song like this now... You can imagine the CGI production values of the video be mind-boggling. But I quite like the inventive sort of make-do-and-mend, almost Blue Peter-like approach to representing what's what's going on. And to be honest, a plastic bubble's got to be just as safe as a fucking door taking off its hinges and lent against your wall. Yeah, duck and cover, fuck that, (laughs) yeah. I mean, we don't see the end of the video, which sees Kate coming out of the bubble. Yeah, Top of the Pops cuts it off before it gets really harrowing. Mm. So we don't get the male voice over which i believe is roy harper yeah, i don't know right. describing the effects of different tonnages of nuclear weapons and then you've got kate and her band in hazmat suits staggering about in a field after a blinding flash mm. or uh, wading through a lake looking traumatized with the backing vocals saying we're all going to die mm. i mean <laughs> eat your heart out robert smith yeah you know. um and then there's this weird happy ending where a nuclear explosion is shown in reverse. Yes. And then you've got Kate and all her mates all, uh, all recreating Edgar Degas' uh, Déjeuner Soleil, which was also, of course, recreated by Bow Wow Wow on their album sleeve. Yeah. So, yeah, um, an odd video and, and maybe a slightly cowardly decision by Top of the Pops to cut it before it gets really mm. bleak. But then I suppose they were pressed for time. Yeah, there is cheapness there. But even in this two minutes that we get, she's totally compelling and draws the eye. And mm. I can't mm. think of many other pop stars at that time who, yeah, thrown into a load of cling film would have made it quite so absorbing in a way it, it's, it's an amazing track yeah she was always a little bit i'm a tree and now she's i'm a fetus yeah, yeah. it's still that kind of slightly amdram thing going on there yeah so the following week breathing nudged up three places to number 26 and a fortnight later got to number 16 its highest position the follow-up, Babushka, returned her to the top five for the first time since Wuthering Heights in April of 1978, getting to number five in August of this year. And when the LP Never Forever came out a month later, it smashed into the chart at number one, making her the first woman in UK chart history to do that. Is this the first big song of the 80s about nuclear war? Well, 
I mean, more specials is about to drop in it, and that's got Man mm. at CNA yeah. in it. So yeah, that wasn't a single though, was it? No, it wasn't. That's no. really interesting to me as well. That um, a lot of the other bands were much more Route One in their Nuclear Fear, mm. like. Man at CNA literally starts warning, warning, yes. nuclear attack. Mm. And you've got Kate Bush sort of doing this narrative from the point of view of a fetus. Mm. She's always got a slightly different twist on these things. Yeah. yeah. Which, which kind of is, is one of the reasons that it sort of passed me by at the time because I probably needed it sort of absolutely rammed down my throat. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah. In coming um, at nuclear war from the position of a fetus, it's oddly preminiscent of the very last image in Threads, the horrifying image, uh, which you yes. don't see, of course. Yeah. But yeah. Horny as fuck, man. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, right? But I'm going to chuck it out anyway. But the last scene of Threads, right? So mm-hmm. it's a girl who was born after nuclear war, yeah. giving birth to a baby, and she's screaming, and you can see a filling in her mouth, oh, right. right? Was that an actual fuck-up? Or was it the director keeping it in to say, look, it's not real? I don't think it was the latter. I think it must have been a fuck-up because the rest of it is so consistent. Mm, yeah. The, I, I watched Threads again yeah. the other day and that startling thing, the way the language simplifies towards the end and people can only speak yes. in real... It's just astonishing. So I reckon that was a fuck-up. I've never noticed that before. Mm. You know, um, the image that everybody remembers from Threads is um, the woman pissing mm. herself yes. when she's out shopping, right? That woman, she's on IMDb as urinating woman. Yes. Um, and that's her only acting yeah, no. job. Imagine that being your only acting job. Where can you go from there, man? Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's etched in the memory of a generation. What she? else is there to achieve? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still can't believe they haven't built a fountain in Sheffield of the pissing woman. <laughs> With it all trickling down her leg. And, that'd be a great place to meet, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, well, got my first date tonight with this girl. Where, where are you going? Well, well, we're going to meet at the pissing woman's leg, obviously. Yeah, never mind the left lion. <laughs> Kate Bush at number 29 in the charts, and the song is called Breathing. What's number one? I'll tell you. This is, and it deserves to be. Crouching on a rostrum at the back of the studio tells us that Kate Bush is one of the most original singers in the world. Then he jabs a thumb at the main stage and tells us that the band we're about to see, who are lumbering on with holdalls, towels and a steely determination, are this week's number one and deserve to be. It's Gino by Dex's Midnight Runners. We dealt with Dex's Mark II in chart music number 60, but this is their second single and the follow-up to Dance Dance, which got to number 40 in February of this year. It was written as a backhanded tribute to William Francis Washington, the Evansville, Indiana native, serving on a US Air Force base in East Anglia, who would slip out to front assorted R&B bands in Greater London, becoming the front person of the Ram Jam Band, who released two live LPs which made the top 10 in 1966 and 1967 and got to number 39 in the singles charts in March of that year with Michael the Lover. 
Although their label, EMI, leaned on them to make it a B-side, preferring their cover of Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache, the band stuck to their guns and it came out in the middle of March, entering the charts at number 61. Two weeks later, when it was at number 37, they were ushered onto the top of the pop stage, which moved it up to number 29. Then it soared to number 12, soared again to number 2, and this week it's tapped Call Me by Blondie on the shoulder and said, Excuse me, please, but you're standing in my space. (laughs) And here they are in the studio, making a very memorable entrance. Oh, indeed. Chaps, say what you see. Well, I mean, first off, Tommy's spot on with his intro. Um, yes. He says this is number one because it deserves to be. Yeah. And that's exactly how I felt at the time because I'd never heard a song that had so much in it, all of it good. Mm. And I think this appearance might have been my first encounter with this band. Oh. Um, and, and this band who I think me and Simon actually have discussed it previously, that the, the Dex is this brilliant mix of kind of a, a manifesto and magic. But you can mm-hmm. tell this appearance seems like... It's another militarily planned thing by Roland. Yes, the way that they strut on like boxers yes. to the ring and they march on, they throw their coats off like it's a soul review. All of them deep in their sort of Johnny for Mean Streets look. Well, they do a bit more than that, Neil. They chuck their fucking towels and a couple of holdalls into the audience. Right. And the audience <laughs> aren't expecting it. And they're no, they're not. And reel back in shock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a hell of a way to come on when you're, you know, when you're number one. Mm. I mean, I think the reason this song appealed to me and still appeals to me, and, and I think, you know, Dex is obviously still appealed to me, but perhaps in particular appeal to music journalists a lot, is that like so much of their work, this song is about what being into music feels like. Yeah. You know, you fed me, you bred me, I'll remember your name. This is a song about how music can sustain you and raise you and how keeping the memory of that alive can become a badge of faith, a a bit of a lodestone you need in an increasingly transitory world. It's number one, and it's one of the best fucking things on the show. The way they come on is amazing. Mm. Yeah, at this point, I do want to, once again, plug our back catalogue. You mentioned Chart Music 60, and if you want to know how much Dexys mean to me and to Neil, it, it is all there in Chart Music 60, where, you know, I talk about being a lonely teenager staring out my bedroom window, but Dexys making it feel all right to be alone, and made it feel essential to be alone, in fact. Um, mm. I talked about that sense of inner strength and self-reliance and self-discipline they gave me, and the conviction that even if the entire world doesn't agree with you doesn't mean you're wrong and how they chimed with this kind of puritanical streak I had and all that kind of pent-up emotion and angst I had within me so that's all there in Chart Music 60 as well as Neil's thoughts on Dexys if you want to hear that go there but to talk specifically about this era of Dexys and this song First of all to me that the way they storm the stage it's like a hooligan firm taking the away end you know, yes. <laughs> Dexys have taken top of the pops here. Yeah, yeah And yeah. it's a great way of um, circumventing the awkwardness of the beginning of the single because, you know, you've got crowd noises, yeah, got yeah, the chanting yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It'd be an awkward thing to start miming to. So by yeah, doing yeah. that... It's as if it's really happening, the chanting. Nice and of course that, the chanting was something that would happen at Gino Washington gigs, the Gino, Gino thing. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I wonder how much negotiation it took between Kevin and the Top of the Pops producers to say, look, we're not going to just stand there. We're going to storm on the stage. Um, but obviously mm. they, they had their way. Um, he's a very persuasive man. And yeah, the, the mm. towel thing, it echoes the lyrics, you know, that, that man took the stage, his towel swinging high. So yes. yeah. 
they actually kind of act out what the song's about. How would it have felt to be a member of Dex's Midnight Runners and you're marching onto a stage that's got a massive number one uh, hanging above you? Yeah, because yeah. all the oh. best shit from the previous performances in this episode is now suddenly on stage at the same time. So you've got, you got the round kind of things that Saxon had, you've got the kind of scaffolding that Motorhead had, and you've got this wonderful big number one logo. So it's a fucking amazing moment. Mm. Obviously, um, the, the song owes a lot to Zoot Money's big role band, You're One and Only Man. You've all heard that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the vocal ticks, the brrrr, obviously yeah. General Johnson from Chairman yes. of the Boards, although apparently Kevin has denied that being the reason right. but that but he's, he's a bit like that you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> whatever the obvious source of something is he'll misdirect you say oh no no it's not that mm. but i think just being what they were at this time was a stroke of genius because subculturally they appealed to your scar kids and your mod kids but they're not yeah. a mod band they're no. not a scar band they're not a punk band they're a post-punk soul band which yep. is an absolute stroke of genius at this time soul was there for the taking in terms of that big brassy stacks atlantic southern uh, you know as in the southern states of america version mm. of, of soul that kind of otis redding version of soul yeah. it was there to be grabbed and to, and to be used and to be repurposed and they did mm. it fucking brilliantly and to, to be a member of dexies at that time you must have just felt such kind of self-confidence and self-belief, mm. particularly when this record hits number one. You think, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. all this shit we've been put through of of, of, of rehearsing in freezing cold sheds with, uh, you know, a, a, a two-bar electric fire in the corner, freezing our bollocks off and earning no money and all having to wear the same donkey jackets and hats because Kevin says so. Suddenly it must all pay off. You must think, yes, yeah, yeah. this is why we're doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. With, with absolutely no sacrifice of ambiguity. That's the whole thing. If the whole Dex's project is in a way an experiment of seeing sort of how Punk's DIY idea could be applied to other music, i.e. soul, then Gino, I mean, Gino could have become just a homage, to a love song to an old singer. Yeah. But it's not that. The ambiguity of the lyrics is really key. You know, look at me yes. as I'm looking down at you. Yes. I'm yes. not being flash. It's what I'm built to do. That suggestion that the only way of actually paying homage to these gods is to topple them in a way. And, and, and there's this weird thing. You know, they never knew like we knew. Me and you, we're the same. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like Chapman and Lennon. You know? Oh, <laughs> it's, yes. It, it's a real odd thing. And now you're all over. Your song is so tame. The, the brr thing that Pricey mentioned. It, it is really important and I, I do realise it probably is a homage but it felt like when you're watching it that that was a vocal tick that was his own and it wasn't an ooh yeah. or an uh or some resurrection of some old soul motif mm. it, was, it was his it was something new it was something it's part Irish like, like it was blown a raspberry <laughs> yeah but it's his it's it, it, spontaneous but it's, I don't know part Irish part brummy just part just nutty Mm. I agree with what you were saying about the song being backhanded and what Neil was saying mm. about the importance of those lines. Now, just look at me. I'm looking down at you and yeah. uh, uh, all that stuff. You know, your song is so tame because if he doesn't do that, you know what this song becomes just, a, you know, a, tr a tribute, a straight tribute to yeah. Um, yeah. an old soul singer. It's When Smokey Sings by ABC. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's just no good. And yeah. it's, it's precisely because of that sort of um, psychological intrigue of Kevin turning the tables on his hero, that the song works, I think. It also leaves it hanging in the air that in 1992, someone's going to be singing about Kevin Rowland and saying the same thing. Yeah. 
<laughs> and what really comes across on this performance, I mean, it seems like a simple and obvious thing to say, but the horns on Dex's records, they're, they're the kind of the most strident thing in the mix, but they're also a true statement of intent. It's the horns that play the riffs that a punk band yes. or a guitar band might have put yes. in. Mm. And it's the horns that surge you into those moments where Dex is just, just lift off into this blissful groove, particularly on the academic inspiration bit. And the thing about horns is they do that thing of just avoiding all the pitfalls of a white rock band. There's no guitar phallocentrism. There's mm. no soloist ego. There's this collective feel, and that is ever important with Dex's. Yeah, yeah I think big Jimmy Patterson. Jimmy is really important uh, on, mm. on this track for exactly that reason, because it's that hook, isn't it? It's so memorable, mm. the, the horns on that. It really, really drives the track, because tempo-wise, it's not fast. It's yeah, yeah. Without that hook, it would plod a little bit. But it does. It's more of a kind of marching thing. It's it, it propels you. I mean, if there's one thing you can say about Robin Nash at the end of his reign, he's very up for taking a punt on a new band. I mean, Dance Dance, mm. their first single, it was only at number sixty when he invited Dexys on, and that got it up to number forty. So, you know, who knows what would have happened to him were it not for that Top of the Pops performance. Mm. And this is already the fourth airing of Gino mm. on Top of the Pops. Right. Yeah, yeah. Two in-studio performances and a play-out or over-the-chart rundown. Right, yeah, yeah. And this is a song where every time it's going to appear on Top of the Pops, it's going to draw loads more people in. Mm. Because you, I, I'd, I'd honestly, I'd never heard a song with this many hooks in mm. it. Uh, yeah. with this much going on and it was just thrilling you wanted more of it you wanted more and more of it and as you said earlier simon you know what band are they are, are they mod are they scar again like the beat there was debate over dexes but no with, this had come on at the youth club it got danced to mm. and for this we do our other dance which was called the rude boy dance you basically <laughs> clenched your fists and crossed them over at the wrist <laughs> put them in front of your chest and then bend it at the knee up and down imagine if you've been putting handcuffs and you were dying for a piss <laughs> just like that and yeah we dance like that to this uh, message to you Rude and anything by UB40 so there you go I sort of feel like the chart music video channel needs some dance instruction videos now for, <laughs> it for does you. doesn't it yeah <laughs> The other thing is, I mean, you know, I didn't know the lyrics to this song for 20-odd years, mm. really, you know, um, mm. but it didn't matter. Are you saying the, he doesn't sing in a clear manner? <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, when you get to find out what Dexy's lyrics are, the songs actually get better. They get yes. even more impossibly yes. better when you know the words. Yeah, I wonder how Gino Washington felt about this at the time. I mean, he's getting a massive plug, but it's by some bloke saying, yeah, you, you're old, I'm better. Yeah, much like the lyrics, I'm sure he felt ambiguous. Mm. I've been to see him live, and uh, uh, before he comes on, his band uh, get a chant going of, Gino, Gino, and they actually go, da-da, da-da, da-da. So he's obviously decided nice. to embrace it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As mentioned before, I saw him in 1986 at the Hippo Club in Nottingham, and it was the first time I'd seen anything remotely approaching a soul review, and I fucking mm, mm, loved yeah. it. And yes, he came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I see a lot in you, you've got a lot of potential, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I just walked out floating on right. air, just thinking, oh my God, Gino Washington thinks I'm skilled. <laughs> uh, not realising that he was doing the same thing all over the country, picking out <laughs> lads on their own in the audience and just saying, you're fucking brilliant. I can see a lot in you. Because he did it to Ian Brown at the same time. Oh. Yeah, but it was you. It wasn't your mate. It was you. You can, you can, you can have that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Completely. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a fucking anti-vax monkey cunt. <laughs> <laughs> And this performance has elements of what would go on to be the Dexys' projected passion review, 
where yes. he's doing that kind of testifying thing. He falls to his knees at one point. It's kind of weird yes. that he's got a guitar around his neck um, because uh, yes. that, that just doesn't seem a very Kevin thing. But uh, obviously, at, no. at, at that moment, it worked. But yeah, just the, the falling to your knees thing, that brings such a drama to that moment in the song. Top of the Pops ought to consider the song lucky that Dexys didn't start the song the way they started at gigs, just standing there in total silence, waiting for everyone to shut up. <laughs> and then having a go at people and telling them to fuck off to the pub if they're not mm. prepared to listen. Amazing. I mean, yeah, this could have gone on for fucking ages. <laughs> this song being number one, actually, I can vividly remember, it took me by surprise. Me too. I was delighted that it was number one for my birthday. It just felt right, you know what I mean? Well, it really knocked me sideways because what happened with me was um, I was at the School of Horror that I mentioned earlier on in the episode. And mm. uh, uh, f- for some reason, one week, I didn't get to listen to the Top 40 rundown. Uh, mm. I think we'd been sent on a fucking freezing cold cross-country run or something like that that evening. Mm. So when when it came to it this week, I remember listening to the, the Top 40 on, on a Sunday evening and thinking, oh... Wonder what's happened to that that song that I like uh, that 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 Gino mm, yeah, song. Yeah. Just waiting for it, and you get to the top ten, you think, oh well, I, oh well, okay, and it's had its run. It's probably fallen out of the charts. Uh, what I didn't re- yeah. realize was it had soared the previous week to whatever it had, and now it had soared mm. to number one. I had no idea. So I yeah, I and it was like, what? Hang on, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, and it, yeah, I, I'll never forget that moment. I was it's so exciting, mm-hmm. chaps. You know that when we researched, we rolled deep, and we we pulled out a quote or two from the Nolan system already but i want to go back there because ann nolan's book a few years ago wrote about dex's midnight runners um quote for our first time on top of the pops with the song spirit body and soul we could wear what we wanted now i cringe at the spandex trousers we picked surrounded by punks we were like fish out of water a sex pistol spat on our dressing room door, presumably because that's what he thought a punk ought to do. We didn't care. We had a great time. I must interject there because sex pistols were never on top of the pops yeah, in right. person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, it was yeah. one of the skids who was on, or maybe one of the doolies. <laughs> I suspect the doolies. But she goes on. Years later... We got a letter from Kevin Rowland of Dex's Midnight Runners. He was going through counselling and wrote to apologise for saying nasty things about us. Uh. None of us could remember him saying anything unpleasant, but part of his recovery programme, apparently, was that you said sorry to anyone you'd insulted when you were in the grip of your demons. Yeah. I think this is the only time Dex's Midnight Runners and the Nolans are on the same episode of Top of the Pops, Charles. So it must have been backstage of this episode. Maybe. Maybe he said he didn't believe them when they said they liked Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Well done. Well played. (laughs) So Gino would stay at number one for one more week before being stood down by the next single we're going to hear. It would become the seventh best-selling single of 1980. One Below the Tide is High by Blondair, One Above Together We Are Beautiful by Fern Kinney. The follow-up, There, There, My Dear, got to number seven in August, and the LP Searching for the Young Soul Rebels got to number six on two non-consecutive weeks in the same month. Great album. Oh, amazing album. The only thing about me and my relationship with that album is when I first got it, I was totally confused about the cover. Did you think it was him? Worse than that, Neil. 
I mean, we all know what the photo's about, don't we? Well, it's basically the ethnic cleansing of part of Belfast, isn't it? Yeah, well, we know that now, but at the time, I looked at that photo of that lad holding his suitcase, being rushed into a car, thinking, oh, look at that poor son, he's got to go on holiday and he doesn't want to, and he's thinking about all the telly he's going to miss. no. Fuck's sake. English people are such ignorant cunts about Northern Ireland. It's, it's embarrassing, man. Al, that is pure partridge. That's when Alan Partridge goes about Sunday, bloody Sunday. It really does encapsulate the frustration of a Sunday. <laughs> This is Midnight Brothers, and that's the number one record. It's called Oh Gino. Say goodnight, girls. Good night. Good night, everybody. See you soon again on Top of the Park. After a shot of a flashing red light, followed by a shot of the disco ball, we pan upward to find three more girls on Tommy Vance's gun tower with Vance himself standing in front of the rail with his leg awkwardly crooked around the bar. Fucking hell, health and safety, everyone. Oh, yeah, I thought he was going to go over. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, you, you know how it is when some men, not all men, but when some get to a certain age and the daughters start bringing their mates home, and, and it's not like they're coming on to them or, or anything, but, you know, they're desperate to put over that hey. Dad's still cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's no way that'd be allowed on BBC nowadays. I mean, can you relate to this, Neil? Do you start sort of swinging your leg over chairs yeah. or over <laughs> balconies or balustrades? Yeah, I can't say I do. And uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm constantly sitting astride chairs, talking to you know the kids in classrooms. Yeah. Oh, are you oh, that, that teacher? teacher? Yeah. I call them. Yeah. yeah, you're banging your cane on the floor. <laughs> Calling them guys, yeah. you know? Yes. <laughs> and those um, those jeans that Vance is wearing, are they Saxons? Mm. They're definitely boot cut. Yeah, they're a bit like the ones that Travolta wears in Greece or uh, maybe, maybe the Fonz. So they've got a bit of flair on them because mm. that's the era. Yeah, just a bit of a kick. Yeah, just a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. By 1980, they would have been well on Saxons, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He then gets the flower of the nation's youth to say goodnight and bids us farewell without even plugging the Friday Rock Show or the next track, What's Another Year by Johnny Logan. Born in Frankston, near Melbourne in 1954, Sean Sherrod was the son of an Irish tenor who was relocated to the old country at the age of three. After learning to play guitar and dabbling in songwriter as a teenager, he became an apprentice electrician while working nights as a club singer and playing the lead role in a production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. In 1978, he changed his name to that of the love interest in the 1954 Joan Crawford Western Johnny Guitar, signed with the French record label Vogue and put out the single No, I Don't Want to Fall in Love, which failed to chart. After being immediately dropped by Vogue, he signed with the local label Release Records in 1979, and his next single, Anje, was his first go at the Eurovision Song Contest, coming third in that year's Irish National Final. 
This single, the follow-up to Angelina, which I think is the retitled version of Angie, but don't listen to me, what the fuck do I know, was written by Shay Healer, a former cameraman at RTE who became a TV presenter and spent the 70s writing parodies of ABBA songs and a musical about Elvis, which came out two months after the King's death. It was written for the 1980 Irish Song for Europe, originally offered to the show band singer Glenn Curtin, but when he turned it down, it was put Logan's way and rearranged by Bill Whelan. After absolutely battering the competition in the national heat, it was on to The Hague, and 12 days before this episode was broadcast, it became Ireland's second Eurovision winner after Dana 10 years previously. Rushed out across Europe in the wake of his victory, it smashed into the UK chart this week at number 15, the highest new entry. And here's another chance to hear about 40 seconds of it Mm. over the usual kaleidoscopic sweep of the studio lights. Mm. And even in the 40 seconds... I guess you can almost hear why he won. Mm. This is this insipid kind of Chris Cross style ballad. Yes. Christopher Cross, I should say. Um, it, it's as if this year someone's decided that Eurovision has to grow up. Mm. You know? So no more silly performances. On the actual show, he was, as I recall, sort of sat on the stage, very downbeat. Yes. In terms of who should have won this year, I think perhaps... Telex's Eurovision, mm. which came 17th, yes. although they wanted to come last, I believe. Um, or, you know, Papa Penguin. Oh, by, yes. By Sophie and Magley from, from Luxembourg. A sad story, what happened to them. But, really? Um, Go on. Oh, God, yeah. One of them um, committed suicide, and then the other one did not leave their house until she died, basically. Oh, oh fuck. Sort of about 10 years late. They were very, very tied together. Well, penguins do mate for life, you know. What happened to Papa Penguin, though? I have no idea what Papa Penguin... <laughs> what? He presumably swam south, you know? Or, and, or was and... eaten by a polar bear. <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, this song, it's kind of... It's about kind of grief and lost love, but it layers it mm. with that arrangement in so many stratums of syrup. Yes. It just never gets dark or anything. It just becomes this very lovelorn, you know, Ewan McLove nonsense. Yes. <laughs> you know, although I should say, hats off to the Batroom Boys this week for lots of reasons, but mm. I had a massive spliff on the go the other night and I watched this Asian wedding style manipulation of the light. Indeed. and got Cool some, dad there. Yes. Got some <laughs> serious 2001 Space Odyssey vibes. It's a good one. It's a good kaleidoscope this week. Yeah, according to those who value the Eurovision Song Contest, Johnny Logan's pretty much seen as the man who saved it in its darkest Ooh. hour because, you know, as we can recall, Israel had won it two years on the bounce and yeah. they just said no we're not fucking having it this year we can't afford it mm. and also it was scheduled during one of their religious holidays so no nah, not, not interested mate right. Spain and the UK knocked it back because they were being minge bags <laughs> and although the Netherlands stepped in at the last minute they did it on the absolute cheap um, using the same video sequences as they did in 1976 when the last hosted it so it was getting pretty important that the next Eurovision had to be won by some country that actually wanted it. And here comes Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Logan saves the day with his maudlinness. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it's quite rare for such a miserable song to win the Eurovision Song Contest, but then I remembered two years previous, as we've mentioned before on Chart Music, a Barney B's about kids getting beaten up. So, yeah. 
Poor old Johnny Logan sounded sad upon the radio, moved a million hearts in mono. <laughs> yeah, because we've, we've just heard um, an Anglo-Irish spin on mm. pop, Dexies. Indeed. But here's what actual Irish pop yeah. sounded like at the time. <laughs> I think with Eurovision, it has become a gay thing because mm. gay culture has always been finely tuned to appreciating camp in the Susan Sontag sense of failed seriousness. Mm. And mm. it's become quite a young thing, I think, these days. Um, yeah. Due to bands like Maniskin winning it and, and, you know, hipster acts like Daddy Freya entering it. But mm. it definitely wasn't young or gay in Johnny Logan's day. Oh, um, no. There's only one audience who are buying What's Another Year, and it's the mums. Mm, mm. And it's not just mums, it's mums at their wits' end, numbed out on Valium and Gordon's gin, <laughs> contemplating divorce or already divorced, <laughs> I reckon. <laughs> this record, it's not getting played by Radio One, as I remember. Um, it yeah. would be on Radio One precisely twice a week Tuesday lunchtime Sunday evening um, for the duration of its chart run that was Mm. it the place you would hear what's another year is Radio 2 and specifically Wogan would have been playing it Johnny Logan Terry Wogan gotta have a system (laughs) right Um, so we don't see Johnny as you say yeah instead we get that fisheye kaleidoscope view of the lighting rig and credits Mm. like vocal backing the Maggie Stredder singers costume and Lou Bass Floor manager Jeff Wormsley, lighting Don Babbage. Um, but if if we'd seen the um, the Eurovision performance, we'd have seen a dreamboat. He's twenty five mm. years old, and he's a moist lipped, blue eyed, beautiful boy in the Donny Osmond, mm. David Cassidy mould. And uh, yeah. this isn't like Daniel yeah. O'Donnell, where the fans want to mother him. They definitely want to shag him. Right, right. So what you're saying, Simon, is is Donny Osmond, isn't he? <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. That's so shit. <laughs> leave it in. You've got to leave it in. I've, I've, I've got to disagree with you both, I think, in that I think it's actually a very good song in its own, in its own mm-hmm. ruthlessly manipulative way. It, it's, it's a very mm. appealingly romantic idea to its target audience that this, this beautiful yeah. but heartbroken man is so besotted that he will wait for you for a fucking year if necessary. Oh, I think he's gone way past that. I think he's accepted it, that it's not going to happen. It's not happening. <laughs> and it's that's it now. He's fucked. Yeah, maybe. But I don't know. I, I just I just think women like that idea of power over a beautiful man. That you know, it's quite a, a romantic mm. thing. And I, yeah, I, I can imagine Karen Carpenter singing. But, but he could be a widower as well, Simon. Oh, did you interpret it that way? I interpreted it that way. I thought it was about grief. But um, you know, I could be wrong. I I, I see where you're coming mm. from, though, Simon. He's a good-looking fella. Yeah, I'm going to make my third attempt to say that I can imagine Karen Carpenter <laughs> singing it because I can. But the best-known cover version is by Shane McGowan mm. from 1998. Have you heard that? No. Because um, the thing with Shane McGowan's version, uh, he sounds pissed off and bored with the waiting, <laughs> as if as if he's he's singing to the driver of a bus he's been waiting for. You know, um, I, I think I think Shane is playing it for mm. comedy. Um, which is a shame, because I reckon 10 years earlier, because Shane sang it in 98, I reckon in 88, Shane would have done it straight and really done it justice. Mm. Right. So as as you say, you know, the, the production's Bill Whelan, who, by the way, wrote River Dance. Mm. Uh, the less said about that, the better. Um, and, and you mentioned Shay Healy, who died only last year, the songwriter. Really? Best known as the host of a satirical TV show in Ireland called Nighthawks, oh, which right. was, was kind of involved in, in Ireland's own Watergate scandal when uh, there was an interview with the Fianna Foyle politician Sean Doherty which exposed a phone tapping scandal which led directly to the resignation of the t-shirt uh, Charles oh. Hockey fuck so yeah 
Fucking everything's yeah. connected, man. But yeah, those comedy songs that Shay Healy wrote for uh, Billy Connolly mostly. Yes. Uh, I, I listened to them. The Shit Kickers Waltz. And uh, there's another one called The Orient Express, A Tale of Intrigue and Cross-Dressing. They're both about as funny as a drone strike on a kindergarten. <laughs> no. But when he pulled a serious song out of the bag like this one, I, I've got to say, I think he's done pretty well. So the following week, what's another year? Soared 14 places to number two. And the following week, it deposed Gino to assume its position at the very summit of Mount Pop, staying there for two weeks before giving way to theme from MASH, Suicide is Painless. It would go on to be number one in Ireland, Belgium, Finland, Israel, Norway, Portugal and Sweden. But the follow-up in London, failed to chart, and he entered the wilderness familiar to Eurovision winners, popping up to write Terminal 3 for Linda Martin, which came second in the 1984 contest. However, he made a reappearance in 1985 as part of The Crowd, the collective who got to number one in June of that year with a cover of You'll Never Walk Alone for the Bradford City Disaster Fund, alongside Motorhead and the Nolans. (laughs) There it is. And two years later, he had another go at Eurovision with Hold Me Now, which he won, becoming the first person to win it twice. And the single got to number two in June of 1987, held off number one by I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me by Whitney Houston. And in 1992, he wrote Why Me for Linda Martin, which won that year's contest, cementing his title of Mr. Eurovision. You know what? I've got no memory at all of Terminal 3, the one he wrote for Linda Martin in 84. I've got no memory of Hold Me Now, which, you know, his historic second winner, number two in the UK. Once voted, by the way, the third best Eurovision song ever. Really? Uh, prob- yeah, yeah. But uh, probably I don't remember it because like rock expert David Stubbs, I was too busy listening to the young gods in 1987. <laughs> you know? I was too serious. Oh, uh, leave David alone. <laughs> no, seriously, man, I was. And I, I've, I've got no memory of Why Me either, the uh, Linda Martin winner from 92. Yeah. Um, I was too busy listening to Suede and the Manic Street Preachers. Yeah. But um, but I, I know enough about Eurovision to know that over that period, between his first win and his sort of uh, win, uh, by proxy in 92 um, the, the competition did become steadily more self-aware and more knowingly kitsch mm. and I found an interview with Johnny Logan from an Estonian paper because he doesn't give many interviews he doesn't trust the press mm. right? Right. Uh, <laughs> where he, he complains that Eurovision had lost its edge since his day. <laughs> lost its edge. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Eurovision was losing its edge to better looking song competitions with better ideas and more talent. And they're actually really, really nice. One for the hipsters there. Uh, he said that, um, winning Eurovision was a double edged sword. He says, you enjoy your success at Eurovision and the success of the winning song, sure. But then you also become the Eurovision winner, and that can be very unfashionable, mm. certainly in England. Ooh. So he sounded a bit bitter there, and I thought, mm. well, well, what's all that about? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wonder what he meant. Why do you think you're on top of the pops, mate? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it turns out he tried to be fashionable, Ooh. right? In 1982, <laughs> oh, yes. uh, he had a new sound and a, 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 on a song called Becoming Electric. Oh, yes. 
which was a total flop. Now, you can imagine how I reacted to this discovery. I had to mm-hmm. hear it. Um, yes. But it's not out there anywhere on YouTube or uh-huh. any streaming services, whether legally or illegally. I might just have to buy it. Johnny yeah. Logan becoming electric. I mean, fucking up. It could be absolutely outstanding one way or another. Didn't he change his name to just Logan? Did he? Yes. Oh, nice. Maybe that's where you're going wrong, Simon. It could be his wired for sound, couldn't it? it yeah. Could be like, yeah. Or his me and my girl nightclubbing or something like oh. that. Yeah. Oh, we've got to track yeah. that down. Yeah. Because, because, of course, in 1982, Brotherhood of Man changed their name to BHM, didn't they? Right, yeah, yeah. In a doomed attempt to go a bit new romantic. <laughs> There's probably a whole playlist or a compilation album to be made of middle-of-the-road acts going a little bit new romantic. Yeah. Like when Manhattan Transfer did Twilight Zone and stuff like that. Oh, mm. yes. I did wonder what, what life must be like for Johnny Logan after his 12-year Eurovision imperial phase. And I kind of imagined either a quiet retirement or, you know, maybe a modest living on the cruise ship and cabaret circuit. But mm. no, mm. he's always got someone on the go. He must be minted right yeah for one yeah, thing yeah. he loves an advert he's done mcdonald's and center parks so he's I'm not right. short of a few quid um yeah, between yeah. 2009 and 2011 he performed in a celtic rock opera called excalibur Ooh. <laughs> excalibur <laughs> which uh, uh i've had a look at it so that you don't have to and um even as a celtic man myself i can report that it's fucking shocking no. and um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and this year he was in the Belgian version of the Masked Singer as the Red Deer, and there's a film coming out about him called Mister Eurovision. Mm. So I, I guess wow. once you've done the you know the Freddie Mercury story and Elton John, there's only one left to do, isn't it? It's got to be Johnny Logan. <laughs> uh, but he wants to keep entering it until he wins it a third time, so he can keep the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, <laughs> the Jules Rimet, um Eurovision yeah. Song Contest, as it's called. Yeah. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. But two weeks to the day after this episode, a secret ballot held by the Musicians Union revealed that 83% of its membership were in favour of a strike against the BBC and the writing was on the wall. A week later, before a performance of Fidelio by the English National Opera at the London Coliseum, which was to be broadcast live on Radio 3, members of the orchestra announced that if any of the BBC's microphones were set up by the time they arrived in the orchestra pit, they would down tools and walk off, forcing Radio 3 to announce the cancellation of that broadcast and put on a very big record instead. The day after that, the MU announced that it would officially go on strike on June the 1st, meaning that no BBC musicians or any other MU members would play a note for BBC TV or radio, forcing Top of the Pops off the air. As the great fizzy pop TV famine of 1980 dragged on, Robin Nash took the opportunity to step down as executive producer of Top of the Pops and pass the baton to the current producer of the two Ronnies, Michael Hurl. When the strike ended after the BBC offered to dissolve only two of the orchestras and give the 63 musos they were making redundant a fat bonus and a five-year guarantee of freelance work, the strike was off. And when Top of the Pops returned on the 7th of August after a nine-week layoff, Hurl was in full control and change was most definitely a 
foot. Nine fucking episodes of Top of the Pops didn't happen, man. That's so upsetting, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder which great singles didn't get their chance to be on there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what great singles just hovering outside the top 40 didn't get their break? Mm. It's heartbreaking, but but at the same time, I mean, perhaps as a way of getting, you know, Nash out and Hurl in, the strike was necessary as a kind of moment. Well, it gave them a lot of time to fuck about and mm. flesh the new Top of the Pops out. Do you reckon, right, if they tried to carry on making Top of the Pops with sort of scab workers, you'd have had scab pop stars. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, had, you know, some pop stars standing shoulder to shoulder with the strikers, like maybe like, you know, The Beat and UB40 and Dexies or mm. something. But then you'd have, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe... Uh, B.A. Robertson. Yeah, oh, B.A. Robertson. Yeah. He'd, he'd be through there like a shot, definitely. Well, B.A. Robertson did that test broadcast at Top of the Pops with Peter Powell, didn't there you know that one where they got camera crew and floor staff oh. to, to step in to pretend to be pop stars uh, yeah. we've got to do that one yes, day please i wonder which presenters would be scabs as well most of them, of them i suspect yeah do you know do you what tommy would bates wouldn't because he's well i mean he's yeah, turned out to be yeah, a bit yeah, of a yeah. lefty yeah yes but yeah dlt and the rest oh, they'd yeah. all be totally scabbing it up so what's on television afterwards well bbc one drops in on the sunshine cab company as alex and chums try to keep lacquer in the country by marrying him off to a prostitute in taxa i watched a lot of taxa uh, during lockdown yeah delighted to find out that alex judd hirsch in taxa proper rude boy if he's not wearing an Arrington, he's wearing one of them <laughs> MA1 green flight jackets. <laughs> Fucking proper, man. Right. Louis de Palma knows, don't argue. Yeah. <laughs> then it's part two of Hannah, a dramatisation of the novel about a spinster in Bristol between the war. After the nine o'clock news, it's part one of the drama series Bull Week, about a factory in the Midlands starring Mark McManus. Then Paradise in a Dream, a documentary about the Coleridge poem Kubla Khan. Then it's the news headlines, question time, the weather, and they close down at midnight. BBC Two is just about to finish an examination of America's inflation problems in Newsweek, then in the making, a series of films about arts and crafts in modern Britain, follows the theatrical designer Pamela Howard about as she works on the RSC's production of Othello, starring... Who do you think's going to play Othello in 1980, chaps? In 1980, I mean, is it a black guy? Please, please let it be a black guy. First of all, <laughs> Donald Sindon. What? What the Donald fuck? fucking Sindon. Oh, you know, there were God. black actors available by this time. Yes. Yeah, this is unbelievable. Donald Sindon. But I mean, Donald Sindon's a great actor in a Shakespearean sense. I mean, he enunciates well. I'm sure he did a good job, but fucking hell. I mean, he puts, mm. it puts David Baddiel and Jason Lee into perspective. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. Phil Drabble and Eric Holsaw are witnesses to Istra as the first ever woman takes part in One Man and His Dog. Wow. Then it's part four of A Question of Guilt, the drama series about Mary Blander, who was hung in 1752 for poisoning her dad. Man Alive nips over to America to investigate how science is helping couples choose the sex of their baby, followed by highlights of the snooker, and they round off the night with a Newsnight special on today's local elections. ITV is currently halfway through Charlie's Angels, followed by TVI, then it's the sitcom The Nesbits are coming, followed by Shelley, The News at 10, highlights of the FA Cup semi-final third replay, which Arsenal won, 
regional news in your area, and they finish off with local election returns closing down at 20 past midnight. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? We're talking about Dexys, The Beat, Motorhead, Saxon. I mean, I I think I'll be talking about just how cool Tommy Vance's voice is, because it just is really cool. I mean, I doubt I actually saw this episode because we weren't allowed to watch Top of the Pops in Stalag Hollingbury. Mm. But um, if I had, obviously, yeah, you've got the excitement of Dexys and the beat. But in terms of WTF, did you see that weirdness? It's Mm. Kate Bush being a cling film fetus and maybe Mm. the bloke from Hot Chocolate who saw UFO. I yeah. Think. What are we buying on Saturday? Um, Dexy's Beat, Kate Bush, Motorhead, Hot Chocolate and new music. Mm. Um, I have a very factual and accurate answer to this because I bought Lovely. The Beat, Dexy's and Rodney Franklin. But in later years, I mean, I acquired nearly all of them. New music, Narada Michael Walden, Hot Chocolate, yeah. Nolan's, Kate Bush. In fact, honestly, it'd be easier to list the songs I didn't buy at some point from this episode. And what does this episode tell us about May of 1980? I think it says that contrary to... Um, sort of 1980 being seen as this in-between a year, it's got a shit ton of delights to itself. And it's actually Mm. a year where I think we can legitimately feel it's the UK charts that are pointing the way that 80s music is going to go way more than the US charts. Oh, yes. You know, in a way, this episode is so good. It almost makes me feel like I wish we could have had, I don't know, another 1980 before 81 (laughs) and 82 came in and changed everything forever, you know? Mm. Um, it's an amazing episode this and, and looking at this episode and also the charts yeah we must not undervalue 1980 it's an amazing year yeah I agree with that and uh, also you know, even though this isn't my favourite ever Top of the Pops I do think it's a wonderful representation of the show at its best yeah. Um, yeah. if a young person asked me what Top of the Pops was all about I could just show them this yes. it's got everything yeah. literally from Motorhead to the Nolans and all points in between yeah. Yeah. and it's got the multitude of genres and subcultures that were prevalent at the time from metal to ska to disco it's all there I I think it's a fantastic episode and that Pop Craze Youngsters concludes this episode well well, Uh, sorry hold on a minute could uh, there's just an important piss troll update oh oh yes come on oh i mean actually this is like crime watch update mate (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of a a slight update a late breaking plea really i've been talking to my dear friend Haley jordan hello Haley, if you're listening who was the 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 person who first alerted me to the birmingham piss and um you know i'm shocked to discover a couple of things about the uh, the bpt as i'm sure all the cool <laughs> kids will now be calling it um for starters it is rumored and it has been rumored that there may be more than one of him no yeah <gasps> that perhaps even there's a whole sort of shawnee bean style family of piss trolls oh, scuttling oh. about the canals of birmingham you know, in search of that sweet, salty, yellow gold. But It's like the Loch Ness Monster. There's that theory that the Loch Ness Monster is actually several generations yeah, yeah. of the same monster, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. But m- perhaps more poignantly, BPT, he's not been seen for nearly a decade. Ooh. The last reported sighting um, that I can ascertain is a friend of Haley's who swears down the Birmingham Piss Troll ran past his flat 
in 2012. <laughs> he's got a flat by the canal and he swears down the Birmingham piss troll. I legged it past his flat window in 2012. So he seems to have disappeared off the scene a little bit. It would be wonderful if any Birmingham-based pop-crazed youngsters could confirm this or establish whether, you know, um, whether the Birmingham piss troll is gone, whether the family have moved elsewhere. The canal system in Birmingham is big. So, um, yeah, any kind of info from the pop craze youngsters would be much appreciated. Let's solve this mystery. Most definitely, yes. Let's get this man. He really is a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Al, I'm thinking, sharp music, Birmingham piss troll merchandise by Christmas. Come on. What the pop craze yum yums who are listening to this need to do now is all arrange to meet up on a bridge at a certain time and have a massive waz off it (laughs) to draw him out. You know what I mean? The only thing I can think is, you know, eventually piss might have just not hit the spot for him and he's moved on to something else. But um, if there's a, yeah, I mean, if there's now a Birmingham shit troll about, we need to know about it. (laughs) Good (laughs) Lord. And on that note, this is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast.com. Reach out to us on Twitter if it's still there by the time you hear this mm. at Chart Music TOTP Money Down the G String Patreon.com slash Chart Music. Thank you, Simon Price. Goodbye. God bless you, Neil Kulkane. Oh, thank you. No worries. My name's Al Needham. Who's a lucky boy then? <laughs> Chart music. What will you remember the 80s for? The Falklands, the 87 Hurricane, a certain Prime Minister? Or will you remember the 80s for the music? The 80s was the decade that gave us the minor strike, the property boom, and then bust. Do you remember all those royal weddings? The revolutions in home entertainment and mobile phones. And then the stock market crash on Black Wednesday. But above all, the 80s were a decade of great music. And now you can have the greatest hits of the 80s on one special collection delivered right to your door. The greatest hits of the 80s contain 64 top 10 hits and 30 big number ones. On four cassettes for just $27.99 or four CDs for $29.99 plus $2.50 postage and packing. You can't get the greatest hits of the 80s in the shops, but we'll rush it to you if you call 0800-700-600 now to place your order. Allow 21 days for delivery. The musical story of the 80s. Order the greatest hits of the 80s by calling free on 0800-700-600 now. Rock expert David Stubbs! Rock expert David Stubbs! Hi, my name's David Stubbs. 
Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Bringing you a hard-driving mix of hard rock and hard facts. As I record this, it's exactly 25 years since the death of Michael Hutchins of Inexcess, undoubtedly the finest rock band ever to come out of New Zealand. He rocked hard. He lived clean. Take it from the rock expert, the man who knows. He never took drugs. Just ask his wife, Paula Radcliffe, who never took them either. But I'm not here to talk about Paula Radcliffe. I'm here to talk about White Snake. Iconic, hard-driving. If they were a stick of rock, they'd have the word rock running through them. And let me tell you, in 1981, it took balls of thunder to rock like this as once true rockers deserted the metal faith in droves to dance under the disco lights to David Van Day's dollar. Thanks a bunch for turning us soft, Larry Grayson. He's a rolling, a rocking, a rocking, a rolling rock expert, David Stubbs. Thank goodness, help arrived in the form of that 80s heavy rock movement whose acronym trips so easily off the tongue. I'm talking about... New wave of British heavy metal. White Snake had already laid down a marker three years earlier with their iconic feminist anthem, Lie Down, a modern love song. A woman who truly respects herself, respects a strong man who tells her to lie down and have some sex done to her. She doesn't need me in the groin. Bogus! Anyway, let's get down to Don't Break My Heart Again. Catalog number E C six five four three seven G S two nine X four. Damn, damn. There should be E C six five four three seven G six three nine X four. Stupid, stupid mistake, stupid. Who could forget the baseline? Doom, 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 doom. I'm standing with my back to the wall, sings Mr. Carmadale. I feel his pain. He's on his guard. If you've ever been taken from behind by a woman, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mr. Carmadale sure as hell does. Which is why I send out this message to women to quote Mr. Carmadale right here on this song. Make no mistake, it could be your last. Because there's nothing like a maudlin, empty death threat to convince a woman who just won't lie down to lie down. And that's modern. Take it away, Al! Rockin' and rollin', rollin' and rockin', rockin' and rollin' and rockin'! If you want to hear more from me, rock expert David Stubbs, subscribe to me on YouTube. Address HTTPS. Or colon slash slash www.youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals Q K L E H dash O O F D eight M percent T equals one three four S. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 